Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from AbbVie through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs Season 4. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside your centre, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from experts across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. This season, we've been mixing it up a little with a series of cross-specialty conversations. Today, I'm happy to be talking about plastic surgery with Dr. Simon Frank. He's an assistant professor and program director of plastic surgery at the University of Ottawa. In his practice, his focus is on breast reconstruction, microvascular surgery, aesthetic surgery, and general plastic surgery. I will also mention that he did his plastic surgery training here at Dalhousie. Simon, welcome to Dermalogs. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks very much for having me. I'm happy to be talking to a plastic surgeon because I think we have a lot of areas of practice that overlap. And then, of course, there's areas that don't. So what I was thinking for our conversation is we could spend a little time talking about skin cancers, uh, maybe just a couple of uh, things about HS that the residents had a question for, um, and then maybe talking just a little bit about some of the um, aesthetic things that may be in both of our um, practice areas. Does that sound pretty good? Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Perfect. So first, skin cancer. Um, I suspect that you're as equally overwhelmed with all of the skin cancers uh, that are pouring in the doors uh, at a regular basis. But maybe just thinking back over the past couple of years or more so during the the, the peak pandemic time, did you notice that there was um, a delay in treatment for skin cancers? Or was that a problem that you guys have had in Ottawa at all? That's an interesting question, Carrie, and that's certainly something we were talking about early pandemic and hypothesizing about. We certainly assumed we would start seeing a lot of late, delayed misdiagnoses, that kind of thing, late presenting skin cancers. And I have to say, anecdotally, I don't find that I have, at least in my practice, I don't know what the data is in Ottawa or the region or Canada even, but I haven't seen that huge increase in delayed presentation. There's the people who are always going to show up late with their ignored wounds that have been fungating for years. Mm -hmm. But the other patients, I find they've been getting a hold of family docs, and maybe they haven't been going in to see them in person, but they've been getting referred in a relatively timely fashion, I'd say. So I haven't seen that here in Ottawa, at least, or at least not in my practice. Okay, I guess one of the things that I think about just thinking about non melanoma skin cancer to begin with, I guess, is that, you know, a lot of times if um, a patient has either a very large non melanoma skin cancer, or they have it in a place um, that maybe isn't amenable to like electrodesiccation and curatage, or maybe we don't feel comfortable, we, we often refer. Um, obviously, there's the other component of Mohs that sometimes plays a role. But just thinking about us referring to you, what kind of information is helpful in a referral for non-melanoma skin cancer to give you a better sense of like when you need to see it and whether you're able to just book it for a procedure or if you want to see it first as a consult, like just some tips, I guess, on the on the referring piece. Uh, probably a couple of useful things that I can think of. One is a tissue diagnosis. The vast majority of the time when we're seeing a patient from a dermatologist, we'll have a tissue diagnosis at that point. From a family doctor, we don't always, and that makes it very challenging to triage sometimes if you don't really know what you're dealing with, or maybe you need to do a biopsy before you can proceed with treatment. So having a diagnosis before we go ahead of things is helpful. Sometimes you guys know what you're looking at, and even without a biopsy, you guys mm -hmm. are pretty confident. And 
In some of those, we just go ahead with excision if it's a fairly classic-looking lesion. Photographs are incredibly helpful. Depends on your referral system. Sometimes those are hard to get to the referring physician if things are going by old-fashioned facts. But if you've got dermatologists and plastic surgeons who work together, if you can text through a secure HIPCURE, HIPAA-compliant method, of course, uh, if you can text uh, a picture of the lesion, that really can help with operative planning. You know whether or not you're going to be able to do it in clinic. Is it something that's going to need a skin graft, a local flap? Is it something that might need to go to the operating room, depending on the extent? So I think that's often you, a picture's worth a thousand words or whatever the saying is. That really can help with operative planning, I think. Yeah, excellent. That's a really good point. And, and I think most people probably do end up working with... Um, you know, you kind of have your usual plastic surgeons that you work with. And so being able to send that information is quite helpful. I guess I'm thinking as well about, let's say a patient comes to you, but you feel that it would be more amenable to say radiation or Mohs. Do you prefer to just, you know, communicate that back to the dermatologist? Do you do the referral? Do you guys have a cancer site team that discusses cases in your location? Carrie, I don't think I've ever seen a skin cancer that I think would do better with radiation than with, with good old fashioned surgery. <laughs> Why would I ask a surgeon that? I should have thought. Why about would that. you ask that? <laughs> uh, that's it depends on like you were like pertaining to your previous question. It depends on the quality of the referral. If someone's given a lot of information, either with a photograph or with detailed information on where the lesion is, how big it is. You know, if someone says they've got some big thing on the tip of someone's nose with indis, you know, a sclerosing basal cell or something, that's very straightforward. I'm going to say, you know, that person probably needs to see a Mohs surgeon. But sometimes they'll slip through the cracks mm-hmm. and you say, oh, they got a little spot on the on the nose. Sure, I'll see them in clinic. And then you see it and you say, oh, dear, this better go off to see one of my colleagues in Mohs surgery. Um, I don't have to tell you this. I mean, Mohs is an incredible tool. We've only got one Mohs surgeon here in Ottawa, and I think she's multiples busier than she would like to be. But it's a great resource to be able to offer to patients, no doubt about it. Absolutely, with the right clinical context, for sure. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking about places like that are a bit challenging. So, you know, the scalp, for example, seems to be a a big challenge spot or like the lower leg. And so um, when you're looking at patients that maybe have sort of a moderate sized uh, squamous cell carcinoma on the scalp or the lower leg and you've opted to excise it, you know, have you had run into what kind of challenges do you run into, I guess, thinking about your operative planning, healing, you know, how can we help with healing? Because we tend to see those people uh, over time as well. Any tips? Or is it just, you know, do it and cross yeah, your fingers sc- and hope for the best? Do it. In- exactly. Yeah. Scalp, I think that's probably true to a certain extent. It's much more forgiving in a sense. I mean, it's tight. And I'm sure you've run into this situation. You take something out, you think it's going to be relatively straightforward to get closed. And then you say, oh boy, this isn't moving as much as I thought it would. It it can be a challenge getting anything out of a scalp. Once you get over, you know, you start getting over a couple centimeters or a few centimeters in diameter, it can be quite challenging. But that being said, the vascularity of the head and neck is so good that those areas tend to be relatively tolerant Mm -hmm. uh, or more flexible in terms of planning of local flaps. Uh, You can maybe push the limits a little bit more with local flaps. And they also do well, the scalp, for example, does so well with secondary intention healing that you can often get away with partial closure of a lesion or purse stringing a lesion down in, for example, a bald area of a man's head. The end result of 
letting something heal secondarily can be extremely satisfactory. It means dressing care for a few weeks maybe, but heals relatively quickly. Patients tend to tolerate it well, and the final results can be sometimes less morbid than doing relatively large rotation flaps or rhomboids or something like that. That's a really good point to bring up. And I think we often kind of forget about that secondary intention in dermatology in particular, because we're always like open skin. No, Um, but you're right. It heals in really remarkably well. and, And sometimes you can't even tell the difference. Okay. What about this is a common thing that tends to happen. And, you know, a lot of times it'll happen in, in dermatology if we do an electrodesiccation and curatage, say excision for a basal cell, and, and um, or if we do a small elliptical excision that occasionally the pathology will come back with, you know, lateral margins positive. Um, how do you tend to approach that? Because I, I have my own way, um, but I'm curious about what you as a surgeon would do if you see that path come across your desk. So lateral, not deep margins positive in a basal cell. Right. In a basal cell, it depends a little bit on the clinical context. Um, on a nodular basal cell in the right patient, certainly a conversation about observation, I think is very reasonable. Um, and, and as you know perfectly well, that many of those, even with a positive peripheral margin, uh, are not going to come back. That being said, depending on the anatomic location, if it's not in an overly sensitive anatomic location, it's not going to compromise some aesthetic unit of the face or the eyelid or the lip or the nose. Re-excision, sometimes it may be curative, may also be treating the patient's anxiety. I think some patients like the idea of having a clear pathology report. Um, so I'll often offer it. I'm, I'm sure you have a similar discussion with your patients. You sit down and say, you know, the data suggests that a significant majority of these won't come back, even though we've got a positive margin. However, that being said, if it gives you peace of mind and lets you sleep easier at night, uh, we can certainly consider re-excision rather than bringing you back for a recheck periodically or having you followed by your family physician or something like that. Um, so yeah, varied, but certainly quite comfortable observing those. I'll sometimes see them back personally. It depends on the patient's relationship with their family physician or if they already have a dermatologist. Sometimes they prefer to follow up with their dermatologist for surveillance. That, yeah, that's basically what I do also versus, you know, I, I'm assuming you have a different approach with a positive deep margin or if it's a squame. Yeah, precisely. Those all, those are re-excision. I mean, maybe in, in the rare comorbid, moribund patient, but it, oh, yeah, agreed. Yeah, re-excision for, for almost any other mar- positive margin, whether it's a deep margin or a, any kind of margin on a more aggressive non-melanoma skin cancer. Okay. Let's just shift gears to melanoma for a minute. And I mean, I think there's a lot of changes in melanoma care. Um, we did a podcast with one of my colleagues in medical oncology just to talk about, you know, adjuvant and um, uh, treatment for metastatic melanoma, which thinking back to when we were residents was just not um, even feasible to consider. But obviously, there's lots of changes in melanoma, but the surgical piece remains the same. <laughs> you cut and you cut wide. Um, the residents had had a question about melanoma. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Janice Chang from the University of Ottawa. My question for Dr. Frank is, for a suspected melanoma, if we're doing a large biopsy for diagnosis, for example, 8 to 10 millimeters, would this have an impact on lymphatic drainage for sentinel node biopsy? i.e., you know, is us cutting them out and then referring for re-excision plus central lymph node biopsy impacting that procedure at all? 
That's an interesting question. I don't know of any specific evidence on that. Um, I mean, you need to arrive at a tissue diagnosis somehow, and we certainly know that a smaller punch biopsy, for example, in these melanocytic lesions can sometimes, I think, be challenging for the pathologist to interpret. So I think either a, uh, a larger punch biopsy or, or an excisional biopsy, depending on the size of the lesion, is entirely appropriate. Um, so does that disturb the lymphatic drainage? I guess ultimately you're going to be injecting whatever agent you're using, technetium or blue dye or whatever you're going to be using to map your nodes, skin that would have been adjacent to the lesion. So presumably it would be a similar draining lymphatic as to the adjacent lesion. Is the presence of scar going to affect that? I guess it depends on the orientation of the scar. I guess I don't know the answer to that. From a practical point of view, you need to arrive at a diagnosis somehow. So I think the lesion has to come out. So I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I don't think you want to skimp on your diagnosis uh, in anticipation of uh, subsequent sentinel lymph node sampling. Yeah, I totally agree. Because you're, you're obviously not going to sentinel lymph node a patient that doesn't require it. And so without that primary tissue diagnosis, you're not going to have a sense of the depth. And then you're not going to know what you need to do. So I, I concur. Um, you, meant, you mentioned this piece that I find sometimes is where dermatologists and plastic surgeons disagree or don't always align in their agreement with it, which is what is the best way to get a piece of tissue to the pathologist for a potentially concerning pigmented lesion. And so uh, just thinking about, you know, the way that you guys are trained or what you think about or how you train your residents, what we say is, I, you're right, an ideal situation is pigmented lesion, you excise the whole thing, and you send the tissue en masse to the pathologist. My preference, rather than larger punches, um, is actually to do a deep saucerized shave excision. And so I know occasionally plastic surgeons will go, never shave. And I say, never punch. And that's because the way the pathology here, at least, uh, handles a large saucerized excision is is a bread loaf. So they look through it versus just splitting in half for a punch. What are your thoughts on that controversial topic, Simon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, controversial. We get that all the time. We'll get a specimen from a pathologist, a melanoma diagnosed on shave, and the resident, a surgical resident, maybe will say, what they did a shave, malpractice, what are they doing? Because <laughs> that's certainly our conventional teaching is that, yeah, you don't shave a melanoma, you don't punch it or excise it. Um and I, my answer to them is, you know, in the appropriate hands, I think as long as you're sampling it appropriately, I think a shave probably, as you allude to, gives the pathologist better information to be able to make that diagnosis, uh, as long as you're not coming back with a shave with a positive deep margin uh, mm-hmm. on your sample, I guess, unless you're you got a really deep shave, I suppose, perhaps it doesn't really matter. But I think if it's done properly, you guys have a lot more experience doing shaves, I think, than most plastic surgeons. I think that's probably a, a skill or a tool that uh, we ought to include more in our toolbox, both for treatment of benign lesions uh, and also for diagnosis. It's you know, a relatively, requires finesse, I suppose, to do it properly. But other than that, it's a relatively straightforward, efficient uh, way of getting these samples. So it's probably something that we should be using more. But yes, certainly that caution, if you're doing an improper shave and not sampling things, I think, I guess that's where the caution arises from and the the controversy. Yeah, yeah. You heard it here first. Simon agrees with me. Um, I do think that it's something that's important for dermatology residents, if you're able at your site to learn how to do a proper saucerized shave excision. Because um, I remember in residency, I didn't learn it at all. And then I went into my office and realized, 
how am I going to cut and stitch all these things? You don't have enough time. I don't have the tools. Sutures are not cheap when you're paying for them yourself, um, nor are blades. And so I learned quickly how to do a saucerized deep shave with cautery um, to get the diagnosis. Now, that being said, I wouldn't do that if I wasn't concerned about the lesion. I would properly excise a lesion um, so that they wouldn't have a bad looking scar. But my theory was something that really looks and and sounds and whatever like a melanoma is get it out, get it to the pathologist. And then after the re-excision occurs, it's going to look a lot better anyway, because you guys are doing it. So that's my thought. I, I had to push back on you there. Uh, you said you wouldn't do it in, if you're looking for a nice cosmetic result. Maybe this will come back later when you're talking about some of the cosmetic things. But I think that for some, you know, for a raised nevus, a benign nevus with a relatively small base perhaps i think sometimes a shave gives a relatively nice scar it'll give you kind of a pinpoint almost like a small acne scar something that i think is less perceptible than maybe a relatively long linear incision that would be the alternative so when you're doing some of these cosmetic nevus excisions i don't think it's a bad tool it's not right for everyone certainly but for some of them i think it can give a relatively uh, aesthetic result particularly if you choose it in the appropriate anatomic location Totally agree with you. Uh, I guess what I'm thinking of is the the shave for the cosmetic tends to be a flat shave without the depth. So you don't try to sort of saucerize it out versus like if I'm worried about a pigmented lesion, I I kind of tell the patient, I'm going to hack this out. Okay. It's not going to look great. It's a big, deep area. Because you, I want to see fat when I do a deep shave versus as you can imagine. And if we do talk about later, you know, you don't want to see fat on an aesthetic shave because uh, you've gone too far and it may not heal in quite as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But so I think, you know, we're saying the same thing. I like it. I like it. All right. Um, thinking about other changes in melanoma, you know, there's been a little bit in terms of um, changes uh, for AJCC or when we do uh, central lymph node biopsies. I guess that's obviously trickled over to the plastic surgery piece. You guys aren't doing anything different than we are as far as I'm aware. No, we got, I've, I've got no magic there. Yeah, it continues to evolve, honestly. <laughs> you know what? I think a lot has changed. De- definitely melanoma's changed significantly, but in terms of the, the procedure, I think that the, the surgical procedure is probably pretty similar. Certainly. Um, yeah, the technique, just, the sentinel lymph node technique, staying roommate, yeah. Now, let's say that you see a melanoma patient, um, you know, and they're, they've come from their primary care physician who did the original biopsy, sends to you, you do the re-excision. Do you tend to refer those people on for to dermatology for ongoing care or do you, you know, take it over yourself or how do you do that for your own practice? In So anyone in my, my practice who's had a melanoma, I will refer them to a dermatologist for surveillance. It, as I'm sure it is in most of the country, the waiting list and challenging to get in to see a dermatologist. I think most of our dermatologists uh, here at the Ottawa Hospital uh, through the Cancer Centre are agreeable to seeing uh, melanoma patients for cutaneous surveillance. I don't know how long they follow them for, truthfully. I think some of them may discharge them back to their family physician for surveillance, depending on comfort of the family physician. For non-melanoma skin cancers, it's a different story. I think the capacity just isn't there. But for my melanoma patients, I, I do refer them on. You do. Okay. Yeah. Because sometimes people come to us that way rather than through their primary care physician. And then the other question that sometimes differs between different training surgeon versus derms is, um, you know, if you see a patient that has a deep melanoma to begin with, uh, do you tend to now just go, okay, I got the cancer center over to medical oncology, let them decide on imaging, et cetera. Do you order imaging? Um, You know, what's your general practice in that on that front? 
We've actually got a great group here at the Ottawa Hospital of surgical oncologists with an interest in melanoma. So truthfully, uh, all of my deeper melanomas, I send along to them. And they, okay. everything goes through a multidisciplinary, right, the more complicated cases, uh, anything that requires multidisciplinary input goes through a, a, a tumor board and they review all the cases, medonc. Uh, surgical oncology, pathology, so forth, and then they make that decision. So by the time, so that's done through our multidisciplinary tumor board here for the most part. Okay. Yeah. And we similarly have a, a skin cancer site team um, led by oncology with, uh, you know, um, surgical oncology, medical oncology, people that do pets, derm, uh, all together. So mm-hmm. I think those are really nice for patients uh, and also for providers because to, to that end, it's sometimes hard to keep up on all of these areas um, as one person or one area when, you know, medical mm-hmm. oncology is exploding and then we're going, yeah. wait, what, what, are they, what are they doing now? So I think that's really nice options. I want to shift gears just to cover another area that the residents had a question about, and that's uh, hydradenitis suppurativa. Um, and so uh, first question, I guess, do you see much HS in your practice? I see a little bit of hydradenitis. It's not an area of interest of mine. I, there's relatively few plastic surgeons I would suggest who have a tremendous clinical interest in it. It's a challenging problem to treat from a surgical standpoint anyways. I see some. Uh, I think I would say that I see less than I did back in training. And I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a factor of practice patterns, different referral patterns, et cetera, or if it's a change in non-surgical treatments that have evolved over the past 10 to however many years ago I started my training. Uh, so I think there probably have been changes that have affected the the volume and the types of patients that come to see plastic surgeons, but certainly I still see some. Uh, some of them come through family physicians and they have not really been treated in any way. Maybe they've had some course of antibiotics, but they've certainly not seen a dermatologist and had relatively, I would say, modest medical management. Uh, and then I see some patients refer to me from dermatologists who have either failed or exhausted medical management and they're seeking something surgical. Yeah. And I think um, to your point, I, I remember even being residents because I'm not that far ahead of you. I think we were residents at the same time that it was considered previously surgical disease. You know, you got HS, you go get all the glands cut out, have a good day. Really things have shifted as the mm. derm residents will be well aware. Um, but we tend to sometimes send still limited areas or like stubborn sinus tracts. So one of the questions the residents had was. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Christina Huang from the University of Toronto. And my question for Dr. Frank is, for HS, how do you decide between de-roofing for a sinus tract versus excision of a sinus tract versus surgery for the entire area, like the axilla? Is there a difference in outcomes for these approaches? And this may apply to HS and beyond, so pyelonidal cysts or whatever, something that's like cystic or fistulizing. Uh, yes, I, I think so. I don't know if this is my maybe surgical bias towards surgeons. We probably want to do bigger, more aggressive surgeries. But I think that an unroofing, whether it's of an abscess or a sinus, I'd suggest that has close to probably 100% recurrence. I think it's probably a reasonable treatment for acute flares if someone has a very uncomfortable collection. Um, I think it's unlikely to be curative. It may improve that specific lesion to the point where maybe things settle down and they can continue on whatever treatments they're on. But I think that I would personally reserve that for kind of management of an acute flare. And I would tell the patient, listen, this is not going to fix you long term, but 
it'll get you out of whatever discomfort or pain you're having right now if they've got a really inflamed, angry-looking abscess or something. Uh, with regards to excising a more limited excision, I guess it depends what you're trying to accomplish and what success they've had maybe with medical management and patients who've really done well and maybe they've just got, like you said, a troublesome, problematic area. I think a limited excision may be more appropriate. Maybe they've got you know, relatively profound scarring, for example, in the axilla from prior disease, but it's relatively well controlled now. And there's just this one spot that won't settle down. Maybe a limited excision is more appropriate. Generally speaking, when we're seeing these patients, we're trying to get rid of all of the, you know, follicular units or the pylofollic, whatever you guys call them, uh, in in a particular region. So we're excising <laughs> all of the sebaceous unit the, is what I think you're looking what for. I'm looking for. We're trying to excise, you know, the entirety of the uh, hair bearing skin in the armpit, for example, or in the groin mm -hmm. crease. Um, so it's a relatively wider excision, which then, of course, makes the reconstruction more complicated. It becomes a much, much bigger surgery than something more limited. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And uh, some of my colleagues in dermatology have been sort of doing this de-roofing procedure where they'll um, freeze, de-roof, and then curette the base of a mm -hmm. sinus tract, for example, and let it heal in by secondary intention and seem to have mm -hmm. some reasonable reasonably good results. I don't do that myself. I, I usually tend to send it to, to one of the plastic surgeons that we use and they, I, you know, leave it to their discretion to treat it, but I don't find they tend to do that very often. It tends to be more, you know, local excision or wider excision. But that wasn't so much a question as a comment. So there, <laughs> comment done. Well, honestly, if it works in their hands, fantastic. I have a, a skewed perspective. I have, you know, very different patients that I'm seeing. My, I have a different selection process. The ones I'm seeing probably have failed more conservative things. So I, as I say, it's not a huge part of my practice. I feel in my hands, I would have a relatively high recurrence rate with something more limited than that, but maybe it provides enough symptomatic improvement that it gets people by. Just while we're thinking about HS, you know, a lot of patients with HS, um, smoke, uh, do you mm -hmm. like just thinking as a surgeon that operates on areas that are already going to be challenged to heal given their location, um, are you one of those surgeons that's like, you must quit smoking for a year before we do the surgery? Or do you just kind of work around it? And if so, how much does that in your experience impact their wound healing? I like how your default mocking surgeon voice is maybe somewhat mocking. <laughs> it's not meant to be that I'm married to a surgeon. All so right. I feel like it's just become, oh, it's innate, right? Like sound. it's, All right. it's how, yeah, it says, I hear it every day at home. It's how it sounds. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't sound like that at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those guys. Yeah, I make them quit smoking. I don't do anything elective on anyone unless they quit smoking. That's probably okay. an exaggeration. I maybe do some limited, uh, I would do a carpal tunnel, for example, on someone who smokes. Right. But something like that where you're potentially raising flaps and counting on tenuous tissue to heal up. I would not, I dradenitis surgery, I insist on tobacco cessation, both for two reasons. One, as you say, a significant majority of these patients smoke, and I don't know that there's any evidence to support this, but I feel that smoking cessation is probably beneficial for the natural history of the disease, but certainly for surgery, really market increase in risk of complications. So I, I won't offer this surgery unless they quit smoking. Yeah. And I, I mean, as a microvascular surgeon, you're probably well aware of the microvascularly problematic issues that would come along with smoking, I guess, at a, at just at a Absolutely. general level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. General complex. Yeah. The tissue perfusion is just so impaired uh, with cigarette smoke that it makes wound healing a tremendous challenge with any sort of flap or graft that you might be planning. 
And this just came, this just came to my head. So we don't even really need to talk about this, but like, if you're just thinking about microvascular stuff, when it comes to some of the things that we do dermatologically, you know, patients that have like severe, um, Raynaud's or, um, Mm -hmm. what's the other one? Uh, the dudes that men that smoke burgers, burgers disease. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like that's that none of you guys don't have any options for that. Right. I don't think. I've surgically, there's, there's some stuff described. I find most of these patients seem to do so well with Botox seems to be relatively effective for a lot of them, uh, which is not something that we typically get involved with. I imagine that's a treatment that you guys offer more frequently. Um, medical management, at least in my very, very limited experiences of mixed success in these patients. For these patients that respond yeah. to Botox, you can do a sympathectomy. So you can open their hand up and you essentially strip their blood vessels down so they lose the nerve input so they can no longer go into vasospasm, um, which is a relatively morbid operation. Or it's kind of the opposite yeah. of minimally invasive surgery. You need to open their hands up. So it's perhaps of historic interest now with some of these neuromodulators, but that's I would say the only surgical option I can really think of uh, beyond salvage stuff, talking about amputations or something like that. I was just thinking about that off the hand. So, you know, thinking about something like um, Botox, which we can talk about from an aesthetic perspective in a minute, you know, Botox mm-hmm. has a lot of other um, uses. And in, in terms mm-hmm. of thinking about things like hyperhidrosis, um, mm-hmm. I use Botox in the axilla for hyperhidrosis because it doesn't really hurt. I don't need to do a block. Like everything's super easy peasy. Um, do you see mm-hmm. much in the way of like terrible Palmer hyperhidrosis? Are there any options from a surgical perspective? Like would sympathectomy be option there? If you were to do injections or things like that in a palm, do you do like a risk block? Like I, does this even come across your desk or is this totally in our neck of the woods? I, I- guess. I've seen a few over the years of Palmer hyperhidrosis. It's not something I would routinely see in my practice. Um, I think that, yeah, the palm's quite tender. All those needle pokes are pretty uncomfortable. I would do it under a block. You can do, you know, a single poke or two pokes to get a median nerve block and an ulnar nerve block and get pretty Mm -hmm. nice anesthesia of the hand uh, before doing something like that for hyperhidrosis where you're going to be doing a lot of needle sticks. For something, maybe someone who has, you know, Ray nodes that's severely affecting one digit or two digits, you probably don't need that regional anesthetic. You're, it's going to be a poke for the freezing, so you might as well just do a poke for the Botox. You're only looking at one or two pokes to get the common neurovascular bundle or maybe the digital neurovascular bundle, so that I probably wouldn't do anesthesia for. But for the hyperhidrosis where you're talking probably dozens, I suspect, uh, yeah. dozens of needle sticks that can be uncomfortable. So shifting gears away from sort of the skin cancer um, medical side of things, just thinking about the aesthetic part of your practice. And, you know, a lot of dermatologists have an aesthetic part of their practice as well. Um, Just kind of wondering, I feel like part of this is social media driven based on the fact that everybody wants to look poreless and like they're never aging. But what are the most common things that people come to you for? And not thinking about the, you know, below the, below the neck, I guess, but like sort of facial things that people are coming to you for, from for aesthetic purposes. So as plastic surgeons, we see a lot more people seeking eyelid surgery, seeking facelift surgery, seeking nose surgery, um, which are all great operations. Certainly most plastic surgeons who offer those surgeries are going to do in some sort of combination with some manner of non-surgical stuff, whether it's mm-hmm. fillers or Botox 
or perhaps transfer of fat in lieu of fillers. But I think those techniques go hand in hand. So I think that a lot of plastic surgeons will have some experience with, uh, I guess, these non-surgical techniques, whether it's offered through their practice or just as an adjunct to many of the facial things uh, that we do as surgeons. I think that at least myself, I don't want to speak for all plastic surgeons, probably don't have the same degree of expertise with, say, skin resurfacing or lasers or things like that, that a lot of dermatologists have a lot of expertise with. That's something that I often refer my patients uh, along for if they've got either lesions that they want treated with laser for things like skin resurfacing. I frankly have relatively limited experience or expertise with that. Okay. So let's say a patient wants, you know, their eyelid surgery or their nose surgery or their facelift, where do you, you know, how do you try to meld that, you know, filler piece or Botox piece? Do you try that first? Do you do the surgery after? Do you do both together? Does it matter? Maybe it's patient, probably, you know, specific patient directed, but are there any generalizations when it comes to that kind of stuff? Certainly. Yeah. Patient directed. Some people just aren't ready for surgery yet. The so-called liquid rhinoplasty has become huge probably Mm, in large part due to social media. Oh boy. Um, So that's, it can be a very powerful tool. You can make tremendous changes to someone's nose with injection of filler and the results can be quite impressive. You probably can't, you certainly can't do all the same things you would do with a traditional rhinoplasty, but the downtime is significantly less. And some people want these noses that they see on TikTok. They want to have that profile just right for the, the selfies they're doing for social media. And so they seek the correction of the shape of their nose and they don't want to, they don't want a nose job. They don't want to go to sleep. They don't like the idea of surgical risk or the recovery period. Um, So there's lots you can do with filler. It can become quite pricey because it doesn't last forever in the same way a a rhinoplasty Mm -hmm. does. So paradoxically, a lot of these patients who are maybe a little shy about getting into a, a big operation end up probably spending more on liquid rhinoplasties than they, than they would if they got, the real deal, but it's, it's certainly exploded in the last few years, people getting all sorts of stuff to look like who the celebrities are on TikTok anymore. Let's say Kardashians, but I'm probably out of touch. Well, and that's, that's another piece. So I guess thinking about doing things like filler injections, especially around the nose, you know, there's a few, I know there's a few danger, danger sites. So just because we have our residents listening um, with, with filler or with Botox injections, areas that they need to be really careful about. Yeah, facial filler injections, and I'm sure your residents, hopefully they've not come across any cases, but certainly they'll read lots about uh, ocular complications and skin necrosis complications related to filler, and those can really be quite devastating, uh, all due to presumed intravascular uh, injection of filler. So some understanding of facial anatomy is critical, I think, or a good understanding of facial anatomy is critical if you're going to be injecting anything into the face, but in particularly mm-hmm. fillers, and you're wanting to avoid any of the large blood vessels of the face and use proper injecting technique uh, mm-hmm. so that if you're in a blood vessel, you confirm that prior to injecting anything into it. So a knowledge mm-hmm. of the vascular anatomy of the face, I think, is very important for all sorts of things, planning your flaps for your skin cancer reconstructions like we were talking about before, but also critically so you can avoid these blood vessels uh, when you're injecting filler onto the face. Absolutely. Um, have you had much in the way of things that have come in through Emerge or otherwise for bad outcomes from filler injections? Like, do you get much of that or? 
it's it's rare. I think most people who are doing filler nowadays hopefully are aware of these potential complications and hopefully are avoiding them in the first place. But I think that it, early management of these, I think every office that is doing filler injection with some sort of hyaluronic acid needs to have hyaluronidase on hand for early administration if there's been a concern for an intravascular injury. Uh, and I think that with adequate early treatment, I can't speak to the ocular complications. Those would, of course, I'll go see an ophthalmologist. But I think a lot of the cutaneous manifestations can be limited or mitigated by early treatment, uh, primarily with injection of hyaluronidase. I've seen some fairly impressive cases of skin necrosis, fortunately, relatively rare, but obviously a devastating complication for someone who's come in seeking cosmetic improvement of their face. And now they've got large areas of dead skin and you're moving down a reconstructive pathway, which is, of course, not where they want it to be. Absolutely. Thinking about one other thing that sometimes uh, crosses the I'm not sure if you do much in the way of liposuction, but, you know, guess just thinking about outcomes that you can achieve with like a surgical liposuction versus some of these newer technologies like CoolSculpt or what have you for um, fat improvement. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess I'm speaking to an audience of dermatologists. I was going to say, put your earmuffs on before I say something mean about dermatologists. I feel a lot of these fat modulation (laughs) techniques. All right, you're going to get it. These fat modulation technologies have been invented for people who can't offer liposuction, whether they're dermatologists or other non-surgeons, non-plastic surgeons. They've been invented to try and bridge a gap so that these medi spas or other people can offer some sort of fat management. I don't think any of them compare to the mm-hmm. effectiveness of liposuction. I I think the evidence for cool sculpt certainly that's a big one right now. I'd suggest that the evidence is mixed or limited with regards to the effectiveness of cool sculpt and certainly there have been some complications reported related to it. Obviously you can have complications with liposuction. From the point of view of a plastic surgeon liposuction is a relatively straightforward surgical technique. So one of the things that I always like to ask our guests before we wind down, because I want to, you know, I appreciate you spending the time chatting with me is like having the ear of the dermatology residents. um, Is there anything that you wish to impart upon them or areas that you say like this would be a great resource or really they should consider doing this or um, anything really? And it doesn't have to be something we discussed. Is there anything you'd kind of think is something you want to say? The floor is yours. Oh, boy, this is pressure, Carrie. I don't know. Maybe this is trite. Maybe this is something you get from many of your guests. But as a plastic surgeon, one of the greatest joys of my job is collaboration with people from different specialties. I love that part of plastic surgery, reconstructing things that other people have created through cancer ablation or reconstructing things that require multi disciplines and multiple disciplines in the operating room. So I think that collaborating, whether it's your, if you're a dermatologist collaborating with whoever it is, in this case, a plastic surgeon, I think can really enhance patient care. Some things are as simple as like we talked about before, you know, chatting with your plastic surgeon or text messaging them or sending them a secure photo of a skin cancer and talking it over with them or coming up with a plan things don't always need to be closed right away. Sometimes a dermatologist will take something out. The most surgeons do this all the time, send you a picture and say, hey, can you close this? And they'll show up in clinic the next day and you can put things back together for them. So I think that engaging and having that communication with 
your colleagues, whether it's in plastic surgery or, or whatever, especially really, it makes the job fun for one thing. I really enjoy that part of it. But I think it can really enhance patient care by getting some unique perspectives involved in a complicated case or just optimizing a patient's journey through part of their treatment. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, you know, I think that enough can't be said about if you need some advice, or if you want to chat something out to, you know, pick up the phone or send a text, because, um, you know, faxing papers aren't always the fastest way to get information. So I'm glad to hear you say the same. Well, listen, Simon, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights. And uh, it's been nice to see you uh, even virtually for this podcast. Thank you for having me, Carrie. It's always great to chat with an East Coaster. I feel like an honorary East Coaster. You are an honorary East Coaster. (laughs) Thank you again. I really appreciate that. Thanks very much, Carrie. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been a pleasure having you on today. And thank you for listening. That's it for this season of Dermalogs. We'll be back again next fall. In the meantime, be sure to check out our archive of past episodes. And for more great CDA podcasts, give a listen to JCMS author interviews hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kirk Barber. I'd also like to do a big shout out thank you to our resident coordinators and co-chairs of the CDA RFS, Dr. Saima Ali and Dr. Anastasia Mutianu, who helped bring all of the great resident questions from across the country this season. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.